Hello and welcome to Table Topics, the general advice and discussion podcast from the RPG Academy. I am Michael and this is Table Topics number 68, DCs in D&D. In this episode, Caleb and I discuss setting DCs in a D&D game and how as a DM, this is one of your core responsibilities and doing it well can separate you from a beginner DM to an advanced DM. We also move into some advanced topics about setting DCs, such as exceptional success or exceptional failure, success at a cost, failing forward, and things of that nature. So without any further ado, here is Table Topics, episode number 68, DCs in D&D. Welcome to Table Topics. I am Michael, and I have brought along with me, as I often do, my favorite co-host and yours, the Caleb G. Caleb, how are you tonight, sir? Oh, I'm doing very, very well. I am excited to be recording a Table Topics because we don't do them very often, it seems. We're always interviewing people. (laughs) True, but we do appreciate the people that come on our show, but you're right. It is nice on occasion to get back and just do kind of what started this whole process, and that's trying to give some advice to some people that might be looking for it. Absolutely. And as we like to say now, that we understand that the opinions that we give or the advice that we give isn't applicable in every situation, every table, every game, every time. But there is one piece of advice that we do think is pretty universal. And Caleb, what is that one piece of advice? What you are referring to, sir, is that if you're having fun, you're doing it right. That is correct. So no matter what game you're playing, what edition, or what rules you use, don't use, or misuse, if you're having fun at your table, then you are playing the game correctly. So with that in mind, we're going to move into our gamer's lexicon for tonight's show. And this is where we talk about an idea and a concept or term, and we kind of define how it fits into role-playing games. And then as we have been doing often recently, we're sort of theming the whole rest of the episode based off of that lexicon, and and we have done so tonight. So, Caleb, what is the term that we are going to define tonight? Uh, Michael, tonight for our gamer's lexicon, we are going to talk about DC, or difficulty class. Uh, So this is not the Batman-Superman crossover thing? No, and uh, neither is it the state. Oh, Oh, yeah, there you go. So difficulty class uh, in role-playing games, and specifically Dungeons & Dragons, is basically it's a target number that a player character is trying to equal or exceed on a die roll to accomplish something. And to sum that up, it's the number you want to get when you roll your dice. (laughs) How succinct. I don't, I don't, you have a gift. I really do. And you make me work that gift to an excess. We all have a part to play in this. Uh, we do, this, we do. And that's what world. makes this show so good. That's right. Though our listeners probably disagree with us. Anyway, so a difficulty class, again, it's the target number. It's what you want to roll. For me, I think that being a good DM, a large part of that is being comfortable with setting DCs, particularly on the fly. We talk a lot about trying to be an improv-heavy GM and, and going with a flow and, and letting your character or your players do things that are unpredictable. So when they do that, 
often you're just trying to make stuff up as you go and knowing the DC charts and kind of how they work and some good rules of thumb that will let you do that is a good place to start. Now I have the chart in front of me, so I'll, I'll go ahead and cover this section and we'll jump over to Caleb. But so talking specifically about D&D 5th edition, or as it's called now, just Dungeons and Dragons, but we all know it's 5th edition. They basically give you a range of DCs from very easy, set at a 5. From there it goes up to 10, which is easy. This is something that most characters will be able to do most of the time. Moderate at a 15. It goes up to 20, which is hard. And this is something where uh, either a lot of luck or some truly skilled characters should have a chance of succeeding on that regularly. A DC 25 is very hard, so only the most highly trained characters or those that are really lucky are going to achieve this anywhere near a lot of the time. And then 30, it's nearly impossible. So Caleb, what do you think about that chart in regards to D&D? Well, in general, I think that is a very useful tool. Of course, it is absolutely specific to 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons. Um, and what you said originally was absolutely correct. The key to understanding DCs or difficulty classes is being able to understand them and make them up on the fly. It's being able to understand what you are doing at that moment in the game what your players are intending to do, what their goal is, what success means, what failure means, and how you want to facilitate that with the dice rolls. So it's not just a simple, should this be a 10 or a 15? You really have to put a lot of thought of the bigger picture into what that number means. And every role-playing game uses DCs. Now, they don't always call them DCs, but there is always a target number that you are trying to reach with your dice. And whether that number is set by the armor class or the save of an enemy, whether it is established by another character's role and you're making an opposed role, whether it is a range of your own dice, uh, like in our Trial of Dungeon World. There's always a number you're trying to get, else rolling the dice has no meaning. It's just something you do arbitrarily. You, the numbers matter. <laughs> this is where we have to say, guys, we're playing a game, and the math matters and the facts matter. Of course, none of this matters for a more role-playing heavy game, but usually there is some sort of target that you want to hit, something you want to accomplish, and the dice and the mechanics serve to do that. Our job as Game Master is to make that target number, that difficulty class, make sense and use it to facilitate moving the story forward. Um, what I would say to kind of jump in there is that for me, uh, as an experienced DM, the highs and lows of that chart aren't useful. I think that you really can play 5th edition D&D as a DM with only three numbers if you needed to. 12, 15, and 18. Like, you know, the more experience you get, you have a little bit better of an idea of what exactly that means. But if something's a five or a 10, I can't think of very many scenarios where I'm ever going to ask you to roll. It, very rarely, because those are almost automatic successes. And if they're that easy, I don't understand where the drama is coming in from failure. There are, I'm sure there are some examples, and we think about it long enough, we'll come up with some, some. so I'm not saying 100%, but 
most of the time, I'm not going to ask anybody to roll something unless the DC is at least 12. And then usually the, the high end is right around 18, maybe 20 if it's something that's really, really hard or there's a lot of other factors going on, which right now it would be more of an advantage-disadvantage situation. But that's really the three numbers in my mind that you need. If you want to just be an improv-heavy DM and your characters start doing crazy stuff, just think of 12, 15, and 18. In your head, because I kind of think of like the fate ladder, and I don't know all those numbers, but I know on the fate ladder, like a, a one is, a, there's also a word for that, you know, like great, mediocre, average, exceptional, so on and so forth. I kind of view that the same way. I don't, you don't even necessarily think about the numbers, but if your character, if your player says, I want to do this thing in your head, don't think about the number. Just think about, do I want them to succeed most of the time? Do I want them to succeed some of the time? Or do I want them to succeed very rarely? Pick one of those, and then that's your number, 12, 15, or 18. And that's pretty much all you really need to do to run a game outside of like the combat aspects to be very improv-focused and just let them do whatever they want. Just keep those three numbers in mind. Well, I think since we are talking about more the of the mechanical aspect that exists beneath the role-playing level here of Dungeons & Dragons or any role-playing game, there really are two schools of thought. And one of them is exactly what you just defined, Michael, figuring out from a role-playing standpoint first and then looking at the numbers. And for an improv-heavy game or just a role-playing heavy game, that's probably the best thing to do or the easiest thing to do. But the other side of that coin, and this might speak to more mechanically focused players, is purely and simply just looking at the raw numbers. That's not really a 100% a well-defined statement because in the big picture, there's always a flavor aspect to those numbers and what they really mean. But if we go backwards in time to fourth edition Dungeons and Dragons, it was all about the numbers. And so there was, there was a lot more when it came to understanding difficulty class or a target number to hit. More in the rules, it was defined of what those numbers should be. And there were more tools for the GM to say, add two for this or subtract five for this. And, and if players are coming to a role playing game with that type of mindset, the tools exist to do that. There are the tables in the Dungeons Master Guide. There are, tons of resources online that give you suggestions as to what a DC should be for a given task. Uh, if we go back to the 3.5 edition of D&D that I came from, there's a full page chart in one of the books that gives you suggestions of DCs. And what's interesting is it does it by flavor. It says a skilled rogue picking an easy lock should probably try to get a 10. A very, very, very trained rogue trying to pick the most difficult magical lock in the world might need to get a 30. Of course, the mechanics of that were very simple. It did not have the uh, upper and lower bounds to the numbers that 5th edition has. But those resources exist, and that's the point I was trying to make. Something also to consider when you are picking the DC on the fly is you need to be aware of what your player character's bonuses are. In the world of 5th edition, 
the numbers you add to the dice are pretty low. Uh, you have proficiency, which starts at two and goes up to six. And then you have the bonus from the stats. And correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, but stats cap at 20 in 5th edition. Am I right? Uh, yes. Okay. I think there might be some very rare magical means to get higher than that, but for the most part, you're not going to have higher than an 18 at creation and higher than a 20 at any point in the game. Right. So that means the most benefit you could get from a stat is a plus 5. Right. Which means a 20th level character with maxed stats would be rolling a plus 11 for any skill. Unless you're a bard or a rogue with the jack-of-all-trades feature, which gives you double proficiency, which then you could get a 17. Absolute highest. I played in some 3-5 games where at third level, fifth level, I've had plus 10 and 11 to stuff. Oh, absolutely. Still much much smaller range of numbers. Right, but that's that's what I'm saying here. It's important as a GM that you have that in your mind. When I personally am making up a DC, I think, okay, what's the level of my player? What's the level of their character, I should say? What's the bonus on their sheet? What is that number? And what's an average die roll that I'm making them roll? So they're, what are they probably going to get most of the time? Do I want to make it easier than that? Or do I want to make it harder than that? And how far on either edge do I want to move that number? That's kind of how I approach DCs on the fly. And that's just my style. That might not be, that might not work for everybody. That might not be the best way to do it, but that's how I think. I think that's definitely a Professor Crunch, Professor Fluff sort of an ideological difference between us. Uh, and again, both are completely acceptable and there very well may be a third or fourth or fifth option that we're not thinking of that's also applicable or, or reasonable. But again, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. But for me, is like I, I personally don't want to take those uh, things into consideration because I don't want to create a uh, an encounter that changes based off of who's there. If this is a difficult lock to pick, then it's just a difficult lock. And if I have someone who's trained in that, they will more succeed more often than anyone else because they're trained versus someone who's not. So my number is not going to fluctuate based on who's rolling. For me, it's based off of how difficult I think that is to do sort of as a baseline. But one thing I want to make sure, there's two things actually I want to make sure we get very clear. One, because we are going very basic here with DCs, and we may have some people that this is the first time they've heard of this. This They're brand new to D&D. They wanted to learn, and this is the first episode of any podcast they listen to, that when you roll your, your dice to try to get to this number, you're making, in 5th edition D&D, an ability check. So if you're trying to break a chain, that's going to be a strength ability check. So you're going to roll a d20, and you're going to add your strength modifier, not your strength number, your modifier, which is, again, going to be from negative 3 to plus 5, I believe, is the range it goes. And if you're if that number equals or exceeds the, the DC, then you're successful. But again, the, the the big point I want to make is the only time you should have someone roll for something like this is if there's something interesting or dramatic that will occur if they fail. Because otherwise, it's it's better in my mind to let the game progress and just say that it succeeds. You know, breaking free of a chain. Let's say let's you know. Classic D&D, your party gets knocked unconscious, you wake up and you're in a dungeon and you're bound to a wall and all of your stuff is across the way in a different cell and the first thing you're going to have to do is either break 
the the bonds or pick the lock. I think most DMs starting off, and maybe some DMs have been around for a while, they're going to say, okay, everybody make me a strength check or an escape check or a lock picking check to see if you can get out of the chains. But what happens if they fail? Nothing. They're still in the same predicament they're in. So nothing interesting happened when they fail. So for me as a DM, I would let that just succeed. Okay, the fighter breaks the chains, the rogue slips out of the chains. Now you're at the interesting part. What do you do now? So I just want to make sure people understand that setting, you don't have to have your characters or your players roll for everything. In fact, most of the time it's better to not have them roll for things unless it's either interesting or dramatic when they fail. So I know you're the crunch master. So how do you feel about that? I'm going to disagree with you, but not exactly for the crunchy reasons. I will give you a crunchy answer first, though, in that if you're playing a game and you are ignoring or putting the rules aside, you're not really playing the game anymore. You're playing a new version of the game or you're just altering the game to suit your purpose. And that's totally fine. But if you are approaching a game and following the rules of the game, especially to new GMs and new players, I personally would not recommend ignoring those certain types of rules because they exist for a reason. And if we say, all right, well, the fighter can just break the chains, what's to stop us from saying, okay, the fighter can just kill the goblin? And at at what point do we lose the mechanics and the rules and the elements of chance that the dice rolling and the stats dictate for us? It depends on what you want to do with the game. I'm going to lean more towards stick to the rules. If you want the rules in the important parts of the game, you have to have the rules in the less important parts of the game as well. That being said, my personal choice for when I'm rolling, when I have a player roll a die, or when I require a dice roll, or when I roll a die for myself, is when the results matter. Not necessarily if success or failure is important, but if the results matter. If we go back to that element, or that story element of the the PCs wake up in chains in a dungeon, how they escape and when they escape matters to the story. Thus, I want a die roll. And as a GM, I'm going to say, okay, I ultimately want them to get out of these chains. I know that. But I want them to work for it. I don't want them to be in jail and just walk out. I put them in jail for a reason. Thus, getting out has to matter for some reason as well. Now, I may be using that moment of them being in jail just to get them to another point, And it doesn't matter as much as a crucial role in combat or in solving a puzzle. But it still matters. If it doesn't matter, why did I do it to begin with? So, yes, I'm sure a fighter could break the chain after long enough time. But I'm going to make him roll for it because, honestly, the player expects to roll dice. Let him roll dice. It's more fun at times to watch a player's response to a failed roll or a successful roll because they will define how that game moves. I mean, if if my player as a fighter says, I'm going to try to break the chains... And I, as GM, say, okay, you did it. He says, oh, okay. Well, I'm going to go get my sword and my armor and put it on. I'm going to go do this. But if I tell him, all right, roll to break the chains. 
if he succeeds, he's going to have that moment of role playing and narration where he can say, all right, my mighty fighter flexes his muscles and with a, a grunt and a strain, he snaps the chains and the, the rogue gets to define, oh, he, he did a flip and spun around and he, and he had some lockpicks in his boot. You get to give them their moment. And if they fail, they also get that narrative moment. They can say, oh, well, he, he struggles against the chains and makes a lot of noise, and I can use that to bring in an NPC, or I can use that to define his character. If, if he's just going to automatically succeed, why did I even throw him that narration of you're in chains? Why wasn't he just sitting on the floor unconscious and he wakes up? I can see where you're coming from. Obviously, I disagree. I think in in this, as in everything, execution is key. And, you know, I probably wouldn't have narrated it the way that you described it. I know you were just making an example, but I probably would have narrated it similar to what you narrated just without the die roll. You know, so, for example, the fighter, I said, you're all in chains. How are you going to get out? And the fighter's like, well, can I, am I strong enough to break it? And I might say, well, what's your strength? Ten. Then in that case, I'm probably going to say, no, you aren't strong enough to break it or give me a roll because it's very difficult. But if your 16th strength, you know, barbarian fighter says, I want to break the chain, then I probably would say you strain against them mightily. And right at the moment where you're about to fail, you hear a small warping of metal and then you break free. So I'm still going to give them that cool moment. But I, I want to I want to interrupt here. What you did in that example, and you might not have been thinking this, but you made up a DC in your head and you decided whether the player beat that DC. Sort of. Uh, That's one of the advanced things I wanted to talk about later. As I said, I don't want to change a DC based on who's doing it, but I do think there's room for this game to have automatic success based off the character. I I know we've we've touched on this before, but if you're a 15 strength, you know, your character has 15, 16 strength, which is really high, and they want to flip a table, I'm probably going to say you can flip the table just because you're strong. If you're a seven strength character, you're like a frail wizard and you want to flip the table, probably going to have you roll because there's a good chance it's not going to work. In that case, that's kind of what I'm doing there because I'm assuming that the strong characters will try to break free and the dexterous characters will try to slip free. And, you know, the players might throw me for a loop and say something different. That's why I'm not just going to say you wake up, you're in chains and now you're out of them. I'm going to say you wake up, you're in chains. What do you want to do? Well, I want to try to break out. And, and again, it's going to be a bit of a dialogue back and forth. And we're, I'm, my goal is to make it interesting and fun for the players. And I may have sold my example short in the, the haste of trying to get my point out. So I don't disagree with what you're doing, but that's probably not exactly how I would run it. I would try to do it. Because again, for me, the interesting part is now they're in the jail cell and they're free. So when the guards come to check on them, do they pretend like they're still in chains? Or do they you know, do, they do the whole thing where they're sick and they try to get the guard to come in? How do they get out of the cell? Can they get their weapons that are across the hall locked up? Do they try to bribe the guards? For me, the more interesting thing that's going to happen comes after they're out of the chains, not getting out of the chains. And that's I actually agree with you at that point. It, it, it does become more interesting the further you go into this little tangent example that we have come up with. And I agree with you as well that I am more interested in what happens next. But, and this is just the difference between the two of us, I still want to see their choice and their agency in getting to the interesting point. And my style is to let that happen with roles and a little bit more input from them. And your style might be a little bit more narrative dialogue, a little bit more description from you and you giving them 
the freedom to get to the interesting part faster. Right. Two different styles. I'm not right. I'm not wrong. You're not right. You're not wrong. It's just different ways of doing it. No, you're not. (laughs) So, again, I think we've covered this fairly extensively. Like you said, there's there's other charts like in 3.5, I'm sure Pathfinder as well. There's probably pages and pages of examples that climbing a slippery rope is a DC this, climbing across a tightrope is this, breaking a chain is this, calming a horse is this. So you mm-hmm. you certainly have resources available to you, but in fifth edition with bounded accuracy and trying to simplify it, you basically have six numbers that you need to know, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30. And I would argue that you really only need to know 3, 12, 15, and 18. But that's the idea behind setting a DC. Now, as written... The DC mechanic in D&D is a binary, yes, no, open, close, pass, fail situation. I want to break the chain. DC is 15. I roll a 14. I do not break the chain. I want to break the chain. The DC is 15. I roll a 15. I break the chain. That's kind of how it's it's written, but there are some some suggestions about ways that you can make it a little bit more flexible, a little bit more interesting, a little bit more narrative. And I want to talk about a couple of those Um in particular, we've already touched on it, and that would be using passive ability scores. Like the strength example I, I said earlier, like if you have a certain strength at a certain level, then you just let that character pass things without having them roll in certain situations. The concept of failing forward, which isn't, you know, it's not outside of D&D, but it's not exclusive to D&D. And then success at a cost, which I am most familiar with out of the Fate system. I don't know if there's a D&D equivalent in there that I've found, but I know it's from Fate. Well, I also think we should add to that list the extreme success or whatever concept. The the flip side of that coin is what happens if you get significantly over the DC. In that binary yes-no, it doesn't matter. But in this concept of exploring the options here, if we're going to talk a little bit about what it means there's degrees of failure, we should also talk about degrees of success. Okay. Or impressive successes. All right, I'm fine with that. So, to to one thing I want to I want to touch back on is if you're rolling an attack roll in Dungeons and Dragons and you roll a twenty, that's a critical hit or critical success, and you automatically hit regardless of what number you actually needed on the die. So you could be fighting a Tarask that you have to have like a thirty-seven to hit, and you're a lowly farmer. And assuming you get past all the fear effects, blah, blah, blah. But you get up next to it. You roll a d20. You roll a 20. By God, you stuck the Tarrasque with your pitchfork. Sometimes. You always succeed when you roll a 20 on an attack. Uh, Conversely, you always fail on an attack if you roll a 1, regardless of any other uh, modifier. So you could be a 10th level fighter. You're fighting that peon who just killed the Tarrasque with a pitchfork. Their armor class is 6. You have a plus 9 to your roll. You roll a 1. Technically, that's a 10. You still miss. Ability checks are not like that when you're setting DCs. So a natural 20 on an ability check or a skill check is not a guarantee of success. Neither is rolling a 1 a guarantee of failure. So I just want to make sure that that is, because I I see a lot of questions about that, particularly on Reddit and other forums where people are confused by that. Now, you have the the carte blanche in your own games to say a natural 20 is always a critical success and a 1 is always a fumble, no matter what you're doing. But the rules as written... Ability uh, ability checks and skill checks are separate from attacks in that regard. So the first subtopic I want to talk about was that passive ability scores. Now there's one already baked into D&D 5th edition, and that is uh, passive perception. 
And this is basically assuming that on average you're going to roll a 10. So you take your wisdom modifier, you add it to 10, and that is your passive perception. So if you're a very wise character, you could have a very high passive perception. And without rolling any dice, the, D the DM could just say, oh, yeah, you see this trap over here. Oh, yeah, you see the sniper on the building. And that's just, a, I think it's more to try to keep people from rolling spot checks that they fail and then they know something happened. But it's a way to also speed the game up. So my question is, can we just do passive ability checks for all of them? Somewhat similar to what I alluded to earlier, if you're certain strength, you just don't have to roll strength checks to do certain things. If you're so intelligent, you don't have to roll intelligence checks for certain things. Like, what is your thoughts on passive ability scores outside of perception? I think it works in the right context. And I think that's something most GMs who have at least a few games under their belt already do. Because there are plenty of times where a, a player is saying, well, okay, my wizard is doing this, this, and this. He's in a library. What would he know about that statue that he sees? At that point, depending on his intelligence score, I'm going to make up right there whether or not he knows something about it. And if it's more crucial to the plot, I still might have him roll. But if it's just general information, I'm probably going to give it to him based on his story or his character. So I, I think in most situations, for a check or a question where the result is not crucial, basing your response off of a quote-unquote passive ability is fine. We go back to the fighter flipping a table in a bar fight. Yeah, if you've got a 15 strength, sure, you can flip a table. I don't care. If you've got a 7 strength, I might just say no <laughs> outright <laughs> unless you make that check. The short answer is yes. In the right context, in the right situation, looking at a passive ability or as a bit of an offshoot from that, looking at just the raw stat score to determine whether something automatically happens is absolutely fine. It's, it's a valid way of speeding up the game, making it more efficient, putting more agency on the player character instead of the dice roll. And it's also a good opportunity for narration. I mean, if a, to go back to the wizard example, if, if the wizard is trying to do some research and it's something that I think that the, the PC would just know, I could just give it to him. Or I could make him, I could make the player role play for me how he gained that knowledge. It's something he learned at the Wizard Academy, or he picked up a, a story from a traveling merchant. I, I'm asking him to role play a little bit and trading my answer for his role play instead of making him roll a die and then giving him the answer. And, and I would agree. I think it's not it's not necessarily a rule that I always follow. But I think in certain situations it makes sense. I think it, it rewards character decisions. If a player puts an 18 in their charisma, that's telling you that they want to play a character who's charismatic. Now, inside of combat, you know, obviously if they're a paladin or a bard, that's going to affect their ability scores and their, their powers and stuff, sure. But they want to be that charismatic guy. So having them every time they walk into a bar, people buy them drinks. Or when they want to see the town magistrate, they get in without any issue. You're doing it narratively, 
but you can kind of think of it as behind the scenes, you're using their passive charisma, you're making checks, they're just always passing because of their average role. And only when it's truly important, as you say, the results matter, or as I say, it's interesting when they fail, have them actually roll the dice. I think most DMs that have been around for a while, as you said, probably do this, even if they're not consciously aware of that. They're, they're not doing it, they're not crunching it like you would. They're just going, well, it makes sense, you're the barbarian. Sure, of course you can um, you know, tame the wolf that's uh, hurt in the town square without a role because that's what you do. And I think that's completely fine. I think it has a place in the game. I think you can overthink it, and then it becomes less fast than just having someone roll. Like if you have a chart with everyone's ability scores and you know what they are and you're trying to, in your head, figure it out as you go, then might as well just have them roll for it. It's not any faster. But I think given enough time, you will get good at it and it'll become secondhand nature. And I think that's that's where you should aim to go. Whether you do it crunchy-wise or narrative-wise, the result's going to be the same. Yeah, it's all based on your experience. It's what you feel most comfortable doing. If you're not comfortable making those snap decisions yet, then yeah, just have them roll all the time. Yeah. But when you get more of a feeling for the game and the situation, the narration and who your players are, then you can be a little bit more free with it. And something you said or hinted at, at least in the middle of what of uh, where you just were, it's rewarding to the players to give that to them. It's rewarding for them to say, oh, yeah, well, you're a really good fighter. You can just do that. You're a real, you've been a really good barbarian. Yes, you can just do that. It's a little thing. It has no real mechanical bearing or XP benefit or game benefit. But a player will take that and say, hey, I'm doing a good job. I got this done without that element of chance. And that's just something nice to give to them. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that helps because I hear also a lot on Reddit and other forums like, how do I get my characters to role play more? My normal answer is to role play more as the DM and try to emulate the behaviors. But secondly is to make encounters outside of combat interesting and to make them fun and rolling a die five times in a row to figure out if you can, you know, climb the pole in the middle of town. Not very interesting, not very, not very fun. So why would you do it? But that's a separate topic. So let's move on to the one you suggested next, and that is critical success or, you know, massive success. And, and I would conversely say also failure. Because despite everything that I've said to this point, I will say that in many of the games that I have played, the most fun has been when someone critically fails a role that they should have passed very easy. Like a lot of times that does become the most interesting, the most funny, the most dramatic is when they're doing something that they should succeed and I shouldn't even have them roll, but I do make them roll and they roll a one because that's usually when really bad things happen. But so we'll, we'll take that from both spectrums. So what are some examples you're talking about when you just over succeed or do you have a massive success? What are some, or what are some examples of that? And then how do you think the DM should handle those? Well, the easiest example in my mind is combat. So the target to the AC of a goblin is whatever, 15. Uh, but you, when you're rolling, you get a 22, seven above. Am I going to give the player extra damage? No, but I'm going to describe that hit as really, really impressive. Or I'm going to let the player describe that hit as very impressive. It's kind of like when, uh, again, in combat, if you needed one point of damage to kill somebody, but you got 20 points of damage, you're going to take a second and explain that that battle axe just completely split that goblin in two and there's blood and guts and gore everywhere. You're going to play it up a little bit. 
that's a bit of a tangent from what we're talking about, though. Um, from a skill check point of view, if someone needs a 15 and they get a 22, depending on what the activity is, I might just give them a narrative benefit or I might give them an actual benefit. So let's say they were trying to smooth talk a local merchant to get some information and they really crushed the role. They got a huge number out of it. I might say, okay, the the merchant is now your best friend. He gives you every little piece of information you need uh, and he gives you some discounts and he says, hey, next time I'm uh, in the area and I need someone to do a job for me, I'll look you up. A little bit more narration than actual benefits. But again, I'm kind of rewarding that moment of gameplay where you got a big number because at the end of the day, we are playing a game and the numbers do matter. That's kind of where I come from. And I could even see giving additional damage. And again, you know, we're going into the combat route here. But, you know, if you need a 12 to hit the goblin and you roll a 19, so we're not, even, we're not talking about a critical hit, but you roll a 19 on the die, you're seven higher and you got plus three on top of that. And you end up rolling 12 points of damage and the goblin had 13. I'm probably going to have you kill that goblin. I'm just going to say it's dead. And I might, I might narrate it more interestingly as well, but I'm saying that because you succeeded so well, I'm going to give you a little bit because, I th- again, I think that's more, a more interesting thing because I always look at it from the other side is I just had this awesome roll and I hit the goblin and I almost kill it. But the way D&D works, even at one hit point, that goblin's still at full capacity and it very well could turn around and kill you or another character next turn. And then somebody else goes up and dinks it, barely hits it and kills it. You know, what's more satisfying when you roll that 19 or you do roll a critical hit, whatever, and you roll a crap ton of damage, but you're off by one, just let it die. Just go ahead and let that be the moment. Because for me, that's more interesting than the fact that he has one hit point left. But again, I'm not a very tactical game, a gamer or DM. I like the role playing a lot more. I'm sure there are tactical people out there who would be like, oh, no, no, the goblins have 27 hit points. I know that. And that's only 26. He can't be dead. And they enjoy that aspect of it and if you have a group that does that i'm not you know don't take that away from them but for me my game i would just say you killed the goblin if it had one left if you did this massive hit and maybe you described it very interestingly when i said okay tell me what that looked like you just rolled a 24 what does that look like to you and they do a really good job of i'm like okay and he's dead and then just move on and i won't tell them he's not supposed to be dead i'll just say yeah he's dead and you move on that makes sense i mean i mean you're you're in those examples you're you're looking at the narration and the fun of gameplay over what the dice say or God, there there's no real clean way to say this because on one hand you want to be more narrative based and not be as reliant on what these stupid little numbers on these pieces of plastic say but on one hand we are talking about what those little numbers mean and how to use those numbers to influence the gameplay and vice versa. And that, that's kind of what I like about role-playing games. There's not just one black and white reason. There's not one black and white answer. It's all so very interconnected. But in general, it's important to pay attention to the moment and what is exciting and fun for your players and for yourself. And if they got a big, huge number and they react, oh, God, I got a big, huge number, run with that. If they got a big, huge number and they said, eh, I got a 14, I don't care, don't play it up. If they don't care, why should you care? And if they care a lot, 
reward that because that means they're getting into the game and that means they're having fun. Right. Now I want to take that out, the concept out of combat a little bit to talk about. So let's talk about a, a normal, like an ability check, a skill check, but they also have a massive success. Like what is an example of you see that being and, and how could you um, rule that as a DM to make it more fun and more interesting? Well, I think a a social interaction would be the best example to go with there because it's it's kind of the most opposite of a combat example. In the example, the player is trying to talk to the magistrate and he's trying to get some information. In a a really awesome success, the magistrate might give them extra information or give them uh, some hints about the upcoming combat or maybe promises to give them a mission when they get back. Something like that. I don't know. How do you feel about those? Uh, for me, those those are kind of difficult. And that's the reason I wanted you to go first. Because they're so situational. Like, it's one thing to say you, you get a really high charisma check. What does that do for you? It's different if it's the owner of the tavern where your characters have been staying for the last three nights and you've already had a relation. There's already been conversation going on. And like, what's the plot of the story that you're in? Have there been a series of murders and you do a really high charisma check? And then the bartender's like, you know, I didn't want to say anything earlier, but there was a guy last night. And so you can use that as a way to give them a bit of information that they really don't have any other way of getting. It's like truly a bonus piece of information to reward that super high role. And like a skill check, for example, let's say that you're, you're trying to pick a lock and you need a 12 and you get a 37. Can you really pick a lock better? You know, like, is there a, is there a point where it doesn't really matter the success, but then you could narrate it and like, depending on the situation, there could be some interesting things there. Maybe you don't even pick the lock. Maybe you roll that high and you notice that there's a secret catch by the desk and you get the key. So now there will be no evidence left behind that you picked the lock. So you can, and you can maybe make a copy of the key. And now you have a key that you can open any lock in this house or this mansion or this dungeon. So there are ways, but that's all going to be improv stuff. Like I don't think anyone's going to write down if someone gets a 30, they get a key. But in the moment when someone rolls that crazy number, how do you reward that other than just going, oh yeah, you really, really climbed that rope. Great. Yeah, it becomes a lot more abstract when you're talking about those weird skill checks and social situations. And what you said is exactly right. It's it's just what comes to you in the moment. And you know what? It is not wrong at all to ask the player what they think getting a 37 over a 12 should result in. 100% agree. Yeah. If you're floundering for an idea or you have an idea, but you don't know if it's good enough, ask them. I mean, just tell them, all right, your rogue picked the hell out of that lock. He picked it so well, something mystical happened. What do you think that is? And if you like that person's idea, run with it. If it's too fantastical and crazy, reel it back a little bit. I mean... It depends on the setting, it depends on the character, it depends on the game. There's no way to really answer this question succinctly. It all just depends. 
But don't be afraid to try to find a way to reward that. Because again, it is fun to roll a natural 20 on any check. Or it's really cool to get a super high number on something that's kind of easy that if you did make them roll for something that you probably shouldn't have or normally wouldn't have and they got really high, give them something and try to make it fit within the story. If someone's trying to do a strength check and they just blow it out of the water and let's say they're not in the middle of some crazy dungeon, maybe they're in the middle of town, maybe a commoner walks by, a pretty lass or a pretty lad, depending on the character and everything, and, and they see that feat of strength and they're impressed by it. So maybe the lowly charisma barbarian who doesn't talk to girls very well now all of a sudden has all these fawning admirers because of the show of strength. And that's an interesting role play situation is how is he going to deal with that or how is she going to deal with that? So you're taking the extraordinary result, but you're taking it outside of the strength aspect. It's still an extraordinary result. What does that look like? I'm struggling for some other examples, but I want people to feel like they can reward things outside of I, I lifted something really good. Like, but yeah, but you, you, you did a speed, a Herculean feat of strength. Maybe there's now a legend that gets told about that and you have a reputation when you go to other towns. So it's not in the moment necessarily that you lifted that rock any better or you threw it any further, but that is still a monumental moment in your character's life and it should hold some weight outside of that moment. Oh, absolutely. And using that idea to expanding on it a little bit, it, it really depends on a situation where developing those role-playing moments can be more beneficial. Let's say the PCs are in a gladiator kind of competition, or maybe they are participating in like a, an Olympics-style game where they're trying to get a trophy, or they're trying to impress uh, a group of people. Getting a 27 on a strength check when you needed a 15 can have really impressive benefits in that outside of the situation moment because you are attracting more followers you are impressing the judge who happened to be walking by you caught the duke's eye and he calls you up for a conference later and gives you a boon or a favor depending on how you're running the story depending on what you're running in the story there are lots of elements that you get a benefit for that isn't strictly related to what you were doing. Right. And again, that's a hundred percent based on your experience with running the game. If you can't think of something in the moment, don't beat yourself up about it. I mean, don't worry that I'm not, I'm not rewarding this random dice roll. That's okay. And hell, maybe two sessions down the road, you'll think of something, throw it right back in. Hey, remember uh, a couple weeks ago when you lifted that rock and and saved that kid? Well, now his now so and so wants to reward you. Oh, a, a you enter a tavern and after a minute you realize that the bard song is about you. What are you gonna do? It doesn't have to be right there. Save it in your back pocket for later. Save it when you have that moment of inspiration to think of. Oh, if only I would have done this when he did that. Just throw it right back in. That's totally okay. That was actually going to be my next point was it doesn't have to be immediate. It can be weeks later. And, and sometimes that actually might be more interesting is if it, it isn't like a big deal in the moment necessarily, but it becomes a big deal later. So I, I definitely think that's a great idea. So let's talk about the converse then. You have an epic failure. You're trying to do something 
pretty mundane, uh, and you roll a one. What do you do with those rolls as a DM? Well, again, I think it depends on the moment, and it depends on what the player is trying to do. Let's use the lockpicking example again. Um, he rolls a... I mean, first off, you have to decide if rolling a one in a skill check means automatic failure. Let's go under the assumption that we're playing the rules as written, and it does not. Well, first off, or second off, I should say, at this point, you need to check whether or not rolling that one still completed the action or not. Because the initial result of any player when they roll a one is that exasperated sigh, oh, I got a one. Fuck. Right. Most of the time, even with your numerical benefits rolling a one is probably going to result in a failure. Now, sometimes it doesn't. For this example, let's say that rolling a one does not result in a failure of picking this lock. In the context of this example, we want to figure out what rolling that one means. So we could say, all right, you picked the lock, but since you rolled a one, the lock is broken. So if they're trying to be stealthy... They might, they might be leaving evidence now because they can't close the lock after they opened the chest and someone's going to know that they did it. Or maybe you can say, well, you broke your lock pick. So you're going to be at a disadvantage to pick other locks until you go into town and get it fixed. Or you opened the door, but uh, you kind of dropped your lock picks on your toe and you said, ouch, or, or the, the hinges squeaked or, or some kind of noise happened and the guards heard you and they're going to come over. So you, you still accomplished what you did because the number said you did, but something else happens that's not necessarily good or not necessarily what you wanted to happen. What do you think? I'm kind of on, uh, in agreement with you there is that, again, a, a natural one outside of combat is not a guaranteed failure. Most players, they roll the one, they're going to pick their dice back up and go, I failed. And you might just say, okay, move on. Or you might say, no, what did you get? Because the DC is not that high. But assuming that they actually succeeded, even they rolled a one, those are moments to, to, inter to introduce those unwanted complications, make it kind of funny, make it kind of interesting. And Sort of an, you know, another topic that we were going to maybe touch on tonight, because we're already kind of going long for this episode, is letting roles become reality. And what I mean by that uh, quickly is, so let's, let's say, for example, someone says, I want to do a spot check to see if there's anybody nearby. As a DM, I may not have thought to have someone watching, but if they roll a 27, I might go, yeah, you see somebody. So, so basically, that person would not have been there had they not rolled a 27. Like, and that's a probably a separate topic that we can get into this more of like an improv thing. But you could do the same thing for a one and introduce something that would not have even been there otherwise. So like they're picking the lock, they roll a one. Yeah, they pick the lock, but when they open it, there's someone on the other side stepping out of the bath and they're in their towel. That would be kind of a funny moment, depending on the situation. Uh, it could be interesting, could be something that they didn't expect. So you introduce a new complication that makes more more drama or more interesting because they rolled a 1, that had they rolled a 12, they would have opened the door and the room been empty. Again, that's that's probably taking this to a different level, but that's the th sort of thing that I like to do, is I like to try to make the story as interesting as possible when those things start to happen. But I do think you should, that's a time to do something. I don't, I, I don't want a one to, to mean nothing. Well, really what you're doing there is the same thing as if you get a really high number. Using 
really high numbers or really low numbers on the die are situations to introduce the dramatic element. Whether it's really good for the player, really bad for the player, or just something in the middle that they have to figure out and deal with. Uh, again, it's just our style. It's just what we're talking about here. If you don't like playing like that, if you don't, if you can't think like that, if you're not comfortable thinking like that, the numbers are the numbers. Who cares? Right. But those numbers are a great place to introduce these random elements. Now, you can introduce random elements anywhere you want. It's your game. Who cares? Right. But since we are playing a game and we're rolling these dice, the dice have successes, the dice have failures, and they have those weird gray parts in the middle. If you want to assign value to every aspect of a die roll, this is a, a way to do it. This is a way to say, okay, if this happens, this is what I will do. And maybe it's a way you make yourself grow as a GM. Maybe it's a way you introduce a new element to the game to your players because they're not role-playing as much as they want to or you want them to. This might be a tool that you can use to encourage people to try something new. And going back to our other example about critical successes, ask the player. All right, you rolled a one. You still succeeded, but something bad happened. What was it? And a lot of times they'll actually come up with something worse for themselves than you probably would have uh, because you want to, you don't want to like punish them too much because they did, they did still succeed. But a lot of times the players will come up with something a lot more prohibitive or uh, complicated than you would as the DM. And it's their idea. So you're like, yeah, sweet. That's exactly, that is what happens. You know, maybe they jam themselves. So there's a bit of blood on the door and they don't realize it. And, you know, we live in a fancy world. The wizard's able to analyze that blood and now they know who you are. So three weeks later, they're back looking for the thing that you stole. And sometimes the players will speak up before you even get a chance. I mean, there's I can very clearly see in my mind the rogue rolls a one and he says, ah, oh, God damn it. I probably broke my lockpick. Yes, you did. Too yes, bad. That is what happened. I mean, yeah, if if they come up with the narrative moment, let them have it. Takes the weight off your shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I want to I want to jump to success with a cost because we're kind of already touching on it a little bit, not exactly the same way, but we're but thematically we're getting there, and then we'll wrap this up with failing forward. Okay. So the idea of success at a cost I've taken from Fate, and I mean it could be in a thousand other games I haven't played. I don't know, but my first experience with this was was in Fate, and basically the concept is if in Fate you tie, so I need a four and I roll a four. That doesn't necessarily mean that I've succeeded. That means I succeeded at a cost, which means it ha something has to hurt me or complicate my life in order to get that success. If we translate that same concept into D&D, &D, we can have some very interesting things that happen. So uh, you and I were talking offline about this. And so let's say, for example, we're fighting a dragon because it's Dungeons and Dragons. And we're in a dungeon because it's Dungeons and Dragons. And the dragon is about to use its breath weapon on me. And I know that if I get hit the full brunt of that breath weapon, I'm going to die. So my character decides to jump over like a wall and put that barrier between me and the fire. As a DM, the, the DC is a 15. I roll a 13. What do you do? Do you just say, you fail. You didn't make it over the wall. Too bad, so sad. Fire breath and you're dead. Or the success at a cost concept, you could say, well, you're not quite there 
but maybe you can get there if you do something. And the example I gave was maybe they take their shield, which in this example, maybe it's like a magical shield. It's a family heirloom. And they throw it down against the wall and they make like a little bit of a ramp that helps them get over. So now they did get over, but they don't have their shield until they either get it back or they don't have it for the rest of the battle. So that's just one very narrow example. And that's one that I would have as a conversation. I wouldn't just tell the player that happens, but I might say you didn't make it, but what could you do to make yourself make it? And that might be the example that comes up. But what is your thought in general about doing that in, in a D&D game where if they're really close, you give them a chance to get that get to that level, but you take something from them or you put some sort of consequence on them? I think as long as you are having a dialogue with the player in that moment, you're doing, the, doing it the right way. And I, I said this when we were having this initial conversation about this the other day. I don't want to take away from them that that shield in that moment. I wouldn't just tell them automatically, okay, uh, you failed the roll, but you can get over, but you lost your shield. Because I'm taking away their AC, I might be taking away a special item to their character. I'm not going to exercise that type of control or dictatorship over a PC and a player. But if I bring up the conversation, I very clearly say, all right, Mike, you got a 13, you failed but you're pretty close. If you can think of a creative way to get those extra two points and put yourself in a maybe disadvantageous situation, I'll let you get over the wall. Or give them the options. Say, all right, you're running for the wall. You slip as you're getting there. You know you're not going to make it. On one hand, you could try to duck and roll and get out of the way, but you'll be prone on the ground. Uh, You could try to call for help and see if someone can do something for you. Or you realize you're holding your shield and you, at a, in a flash of inspiration, you, you know that if you throw it on the ground, you can recover and jump over the wall using it kind of like a ramp. Maybe you give them some options. Sure. And make it clear that taking one of those options has a consequence. And it could be as simple too as like you make it over the wall, but your foot gets caught. So you fall and you actually take 1d6 damage on the other side. You don't have to necessarily taken out from them that was the example we came up with but the idea is that they get the thing they were after but it costs them something else right and i think in that moment it's important just to be very honest with the player and say all right you failed if you want to try to succeed we can give you success with a cost and here's the options or what do you think that cost might be now if you have very experienced players and you're comfortable with being in the moment and handling that all in a narrative fashion and your players are used to this idea of success at a cost, they might know what you're going for as you're in the moment. And they might even bring up the idea, oh, I got a 13. I And I mean, if you tell them the DC right off the bat and they say, okay, I only got a 13. I know I'm not going to make it. What if I did X, Y, Z? with this consequence. Could I still make it? They might throw the ideas at you. And of course, we are talking about Dungeons and Dragons. Other systems have other ways of resolving this without so much of a debate about it. And maybe your players who have that experience from those systems are more comfortable at bringing it over into D&D. And maybe as you do it more often, you'll get more comfortable with it. Your players will get more comfortable with it. 
Or maybe you just ignore all of this and a failure is a failure and, oh, too bad, you got hit by the breath weapon, you're dead. Sorry. Absolutely. And there's there's nothing wrong with that. For me, though, I really think success at a cost is a is a great and interesting technique to bring into your game. Uh, you know, it might be something, quote unquote, an advanced DM skill, but I think it, it sort of changes the game a little bit. And, and if you're new here, you may not know that. I like to run my games. I think about them more like movies, especially particularly action movies, you know, like Die Hard. That's what I'm trying to emulate with my games. So that's one reason why I give characters a little bit more success on some of the easy things, uh, because that is more of an emulation of an action hero that can do these crazy things. They can get hurt, but they're fine the next day, or they, you know, they always have ammo for the weapon. That's that type of thing. So in that type of negotiation, I think you're more emulating an action movie than like a George R. R. Martin fantasy novel. And it just depends on the type of game that you're going after, what you enjoy running as a DM, what your players enjoy as players, what your group and your table wants. And I think it's something that, like you said, if you introduce it and your players latch onto it and they love it, great. If you try it one time and the player's like, no, nah, I just I just failed. I don't want to lose my shield. Okay, then that maybe is a technique that you don't need to worry about. But I do think it's worth a shot. And uh, you could even do it with the bad guys first. You know, the goblin who's trying to run away doesn't quite make it so you narrate that he uses his his you know spear like a pole vault to get over the wall but now he doesn't have a spear anymore and characters might be like he can do that it's like yeah he's only he's only two ways so i figured it would make sense you know and you can kind of do it that way a little bit more organically and if, if they latch onto it like oh that's super cool or yeah that's dumb just kind of read your table and see what they think and also this is the success with a cost I think that concept is a little more easy to fit into non-combat situations, especially social combat, social dynamic. Success with a cost in that you've negotiated a lower price with the merchant, but now he hates you and he's not going to sell you a really good item. Or success with a cost, uh, you got the information out of... Uh, the guy you were interrogating, um, but now he is going to spread your name around to the gang and you're going to have bad guys coming after you. Um, or he's dead. Maybe your interrogations went a little too far. Or he's dead. Of course. Yeah, you're now a murderer. You got the information, <laughs> but you're a murderer. Well, that's a pretty severe cause. Um, I'm just uh, saying. You're, oh, no. I mean, you're right. That That could be a cost. But thinking of those more out of combat, off the wall, more roleplay heavy moments. Let's do the barbarian one again. Uh, you were picking up a rock to do something and you just barely succeeded or you succeed with a cost. People are telling stories that you're the barbarian that can't do anything or you lose a, a moment where you could have struck up a conversation with an NPC that might help you down the road. Well, the physical ones I think are easy because you can always take away hit points or hit dice. Yeah, you lifted right. that rock, but you strained yourself so bad that you lose a hit point or, or a hit dice, I mean, or you lose five hit points. So you're taking a physical cost that will hurt you in the next battle or hit dice for the physical effort that it took from, from the strain. Social is more dependent on the situation, who you're talking to, what you're trying to accomplish, and, and that kind of thing. But again, I still think that there's almost always an opportunity if they're close, and you def you define what close is. Is it one away? Is it two away? Is it ten away? and what kind of consequence or interesting development you want to throw at them or have them volunteer for to get them that success. 
And it can be fun. And this can be where some really interesting and funny off the wall, crazy stuff happens that becomes very memorable in your game. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, I, I agree with you there. <sighs> Again, it, it's all in the moment. It's all based on what you're doing and how you want things to go. And then the last topic, which again, these are all somewhat blended, is the concept of failing forward. And this is another thing that I've read in other books. I think it might be in Fate, but specifically, I, I know in 13th Age, it talks about this. And failing forward, as I understand it, is a situation where when a character fails on a skill check and nothing happens, then nothing happens. And that's boring, which we, we sort of alluded to when I talked about earlier about being in the, the dungeon when they couldn't break the chains. So the concept of failing forward is even though they fail, you still progress the story forward. There's, there's an interesting result even when you fail. And again, without, and this, I mean, without some forethought, this can be difficult. And, and I know I've said I want to do this more, but as an actual DM in the game, I often don't because it's difficult. Yeah. So an example, this isn't exactly from the 13th age book, but it's very similar to that. This would be like a charisma check. So let's say that you are talking to a shop owner and you're trying to negotiate a good price and you're wheeling and dealing and you roll a charisma check and you get a seven, which is a terrible charisma check. So the first thing your players are going to think is, ah, crap, I've screwed that up. I'm going to pay full price or I'm going to have to pay more than more than premium. But instead, the DM says, oh, no, the, the, the shopkeeper seems very enamored with you and he actually gives you a bit of a discount. And he says that he's going to have a special sale later tonight around nine o'clock. Why don't you come back? And when you come back, you learn that you're being inducted into a secret organization that's ideals are to throw over the kingdom and that you've now been associated with this like cult. So the, the, instead of going from a seven, I don't pass is to now, holy crap, I'm involved in this whole other plot line. I now know about this organization that's trying to overthrow the king. I'm involved, and if I'm running the game, the king's men are going to invade it while you're there, and you're going to be associated with them by the king's standpoint. It becomes a very interesting situation that happened because you failed rather than succeed. So does that make sense? I absolutely understand what you're saying, but I'm debating whether or not that is failing forward by the intention of the rule. The example they give in the 13th Age book, which I, I sort of... I took some liberties with is they give an example of you're on a ship and one of the characters is trying to not necessarily seduce, but try to get in good with the first mate and they roll terribly. And what they find out, the first mate actually sort of same thing, like becomes enamored with them and lets it slip that he's actually a cannibal and he enjoys eating human flesh and invites you to dinner later. So you rolled bad charisma, but rather than just the, the first mate not liking you, he likes you a little bit too much and in a way that puts you in, in danger. So I think the, the example I gave was is in the same vein as the one they gave in the book. Uh, another example would be, let's say, again, you're the, you're the barbarian or the ranger, and there's like a wounded wolf that has come into town, and everybody wants to kill it, but you know, you being the ranger or the barbarian is like, no, I'll, I'll run it free. I'll run it loose or whatever. So you go up and you try to calm the wolf down, and you roll a four on your charisma check. Again, the easy answer would be the wolf bites at you and snarls at you because it's injured. But I might be more interesting if it's now thinks you're its mother or you're the alpha and it will never leave you alone. And, you know, you don't necessarily want to give a free animal companion, but you could do some interesting things with that where it follows you around. It howls at night. It howls at your window. It pees on your stuff. 
um, which could be funny and interesting in result for that four rather than just now you have to kill the wolf. Because that's, that's literally the least interesting thing that could happen is if the wolf tries to bite you and the barbarian has to kill it. Yeah, yeah, I'll agree with that. In general, all of these concepts we've been talking about are very, very hard to define. It's kind of like that old argument where um, someone was not able to define pornography, but they said they'd know it if they saw it. That's right. I can't, I can't exactly define failing forward or success with a cost or an outstanding success for an outstanding failure, but I'll know it when I see it happen. And if I'm running a game, I'll be able to do it in the moment, even if I'm not planning it ahead of time. And I think literally all the advice that we talked about here tonight, to me, can be summed up fairly simple. I'm going to do your job here. I'm going to try to summarize, but then you can summarize my summation, is don't view skill checks as a binary yes and no. 15 succeeds, 14 fails. Think about ways that you can make it interesting. Because usually straight failure is the least interesting option on the table. Okay, I try to do this. I can't. Now what? I guess I'll try again. Okay, I failed again. Now what? Someone else will try. Okay, they succeed. You still got to the same point, but it was boring getting there. How can you make it interesting? Try to add complications. Again, going back to my mind, like the the action movie, usually something bad happens you have another fight that you weren't prepared for. You lose a weapon, so now your next combat is more difficult. You lose an ally, so they're not there to help you. You piss someone off. You gain a, a follower who makes your life miserable instead of better. All those things, all those tropes that you see in action movies, just add that into a D&D game and go, okay, you didn't quite succeed. How can I make your life more interesting? And I think for me personally, that is a much more interesting game. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I, I think... To attempt to sum that up, I will say, for everything that we have discussed tonight, if you choose to use it in your own game, use it in a way to make your game more interesting. That's the bottom line. That's, that, that's everything we've talked about. We've talked about ways to make your game more interesting so that your players have more fun, they're more involved, they're more engaged, and you have more fun from behind the GM screen. A, a black and white yes or no skill check has its place. There's nothing wrong with it. And there are certain situations where it has to be that way. But in situations where you want it to be more entertaining and it be more fun and situations where you feel more comfortable letting things develop as they happen, use this varying scale of successes and failures as a tool to introduce these random unplanned game elements. I don't know that you said it any more succinctly, but I agree with what you said. And my closing thoughts is I actually want to give a little shout out to a new Twitter follower, uh, Mun Dangerous. So at M-U-N Dangerous on Twitter. Uh, I mentioned that we were going to be covering this topic tonight and he sent me a couple of tweets. I, we didn't address them specifically the way he wrote them, but I think we covered sort of the spirit of what he was talking about. I want to thank Mun Dangerous for replying back to Twitter and being involved in the conversation. So that's all I have for tonight. Caleb, do you have any last words before we wrap this up? No, no, I do not. Uh, I, I feel uh, I feel pretty wrung out right now from my GM advice. We covered a lot today. I know. I, I'm wondering if anyone's going to listen to an hour and a half of us talking about DCs. Um, and then we also still have some reviews we need to read 
from uh, iTunes. So this has been Michael. And this has been Caleb. And we will see you next time. And now, Caleb does not awkwardly read reviews. <laughs> you just put a lot of pressure on me there, buddy. That's right. Okay, so the first new review to read here is from our UK feed. So a great big shout out to everyone listening to us overseas. This first review is from uh, user GameDisc. Uh, it says here, listen to one of the best GM of our age on Dungeon Talk. Laugh at the antics while being entranced by the stories. Learn with Dungeon Talk and steal story ideas from the live play. Well, there you go. Thank you very much, Game Disc. Uh, jumping back to the states here, we've got a few new reviews. Uh, the first here is from Bonzi Lily Sari. The content is superb. This feed is great for both experienced and new players in a variety of systems and an excellent way to expand one's horizons and see what other great games are out there just waiting to be discovered. My personal favorite is the actual play feed, The Campaigns. There are many awesome stories told and a variety of systems used, and the players and characters are always entertaining. One warning, these episodes may cause spontaneous bursts of laughter, so listen on the bus or airplane at your own risk. Finally, interacting with Michael and the other faculty is the icing on the cake with this podcast. They're responsive on Twitter, really appreciate feedback, and welcome listener participation in many forms. Uh, our next review is uh, from our geriatric audience username listed as proud grandmother of two which means we are really uh playing the age crowd here with this show which i think speaks very well to our talent you know we um, did do the demographics and we really weren't doing very well with the 56 to 65 year old so this you know this this is directly aimed for them oh absolutely yeah i think the problem was they would just lose the dice and they'd get lost in their hip replacements and walkers. So, you know, it's just really hard to play the game. But we're trying. We're really trying. Uh, this review here says, <clears throat> Listening to my son spend time with my grandchildren while playing his games with them has been infinitely rewarding. When I asked him where he heard about such imaginative games, he told me about this podcast. And I must say, I quite enjoy it. Matthew and Caleb are such well-spoken young men and enthusiastic about their subject matter. I've enjoyed listening to it very much. Have a lovely day. Thanks, Grandma. My name's Michael. Jeez, man. Jackass. Well, it's really one thing or the other. Either she gets your name right or she sends you five bucks on your birthday in a check. <laughs> you okay, can't Grandma, ask for both. Send me five bucks. Yep. I, I go for the money. I don't care about the name. And our last new review is from our friend Cowboy Centaur. And this was absolutely not purchased in any way. And there has been no bribery offered on the table. But if you're listening, I will send you that package tomorrow. Fantastic podcast that is both informative in an academic theoretical form with table topics and gives excellent and compelling examples of actual play, the campaign. Michael and Caleb are well-versed in their chosen fields, have good rapport, hilarious banter, and have silky smooth voices that could charm the habit off a nun. Very highly recommended, and excellent for any experienced or new DM or GM. 
They cover a wide variety of games other than D&D and are all highly entertaining to listen to. Well, Caleb's already said it, but uh, thank you to everyone who took the time to write us a review. We really do appreciate it. Uh, we said it many, many times, but just getting a comment on the website, getting a reply back on Twitter, or especially getting an iTunes review really helps kind of feel like we're accomplishing something here, makes us feel like we were connecting with people, and it kind of helps recharge our batteries and want to continue to do this. So I really appreciate everyone for listening uh, and especially for taking the time to write us a review. It's one of the best things you can do to help our show out. The other thing would be to tell a friend, talk about us on Twitter, talk about us on Reddit, Facebook, Google+. Wherever you're at having a conversation, whether it be in a game store or virtual, and the conversation comes up about podcasts or websites, if you like what we do, then please mention us to other people because um, that word of mouth uh, advertising is still is the, is the best thing that money can't buy to help grow a show. So thanks again to everyone for taking the time. I do appreciate it. Thanks for attending the RPG Academy and listening to our podcast. We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. This podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash the RPG Academy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We will use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out numerous ways. One, you can subscribe to our show on iTunes, or you can leave us a five-star review on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. Also, if you clear your cookies and then visit Amazon or DriveThruRPG through our portal, we get a kickback from your orders, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like an RPG, our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at vrpgacademy.com, or you can reach us on social media such as Facebook and Google+. We are there under the RPG Academy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, Caleb G., at... The Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at The RPG Academy. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.